First Timothy chapter five. Now, while you're uh, finding your Bibles, I want to give you a shocking statistic. Some of you may know uh, this statistic, but how many pastors do you think leave the ministry, the pastoral ministry, every month? Anybody have any idea? Some of you may have heard it. Okay, I'll I'll just, I'm hearing some different numbers. Let me just tell you, in the United States right now, the statistic for years has been that 1,500 pastors every single month just walk away. Or there are a variety of reasons where they just, their ministry in that capacity is over. That's sobering. But even more sobering is the most recent statistic. I was reading an article just this week, churchleaders.com, and a guy by the name of Tim Peters uh, wrote an article about what is going on with pastors. And the statistic now is that 1,700 pastors every single month just leave this pastoral ministry altogether. And he says in his article that some of our brightest, most intelligent, inspiring pastors I'll just say, I, I simply cannot do this anymore. And in this article, he actually went through the top ten reasons why this is taking place. And I just want to give you a behind-the-scenes, inside look. What is going on? Because this is a sobering problem. Top ten reasons, uh, and they're not in any particular order, but the first one he listed was discouragement. And, all, and from this survey and all the statistics they've gathered, 50% of pastors feel so discouraged that they just would leave the ministry if they could. And some of them just say, you know what, I, I've had it and I'm done. Uh, another one, failure. 70% of the pastors said they have a lower self-image now than when they started. Another one, loneliness. 70% of pastors have no one they would consider a close friend that they can relate to at a deep, intimate level. Uh, Another one, moral failure. 33% of pastors confess to having an inappropriate relationship. Uh, Another one, financial pressure. 70% of pastors in America feel like they're grossly underpaid. Another one was anger. Another one, burnout. 90% of the pastors work between 55 and 75 hours a week. That is a normal work week for pastors. Another one is physical health. 75% of pastors uh, report that there was a significant stress-related crisis at least once in their ministry. And uh, pastors aren't generally known for being physically fit. They're actually more known for eating lots of donuts. And so uh, there's that. You know, and, and people are nice, and they want you to eat their desserts. And you, know, you keep doing that, and next thing you know, you've gained 40 pounds. Like, whoa, you know, I'm going to go to get a new wardrobe, right? Start wearing bed sheets, okay? Uh, then uh, let me give you another one. Marriage and family problems. 80% of pastors believe pastoral ministry has negatively affected their families. And then the 10th one he lists, 10th reason, is they're just, they're too busy. They're driven. And actually 90% of pastors feel like they're inadequately prepared for the challenges of pastoral ministry. So with that information that you've got, uh, we're going to take up sign-ups for pastors. Anybody want to sign up right after service here? That sounds like a lot of fun and just a wonderful joy. I'll tell you, as we've been going through 1 Timothy, remember how the book began? Chapter 1, verse 3, Paul is writing to Timothy, and he says, As I urged you upon my departure from Macedonia, remain on at Ephesus. It is not easy, but it is absolutely necessary. And 
Pastors and elders, overseers, the terms are used rather synonymously. They have a central role in a church. There is a spiritual war that goes on. I mean, you are vying for the souls of people. You are out there presenting the gospel. You are trying to equip the saints to do the work of the ministry. You are dealing with the hurt and the broken. At the same time, you're trying to train up and develop and disciple leaders. And what happens is, is that these pastors and these elders, they just come so discouraged. It's like, I, I just can't do this anymore. Now, the scriptures are real clear that there is a specific role that elders, pastors, overseers have. When you say pastor, these terms are used rather synonymously in the New Testament. In fact, in Acts chapter 20, verses 17 and 28, you see all three terms used for the same individuals. A pastor speaks of like someone who's shepherding and they're feeding the flock. They're making sure they have the word of God. When you talk about an overseer, it speaks of their leading function. They're leading. They're not holding back, but they're actually setting the example. They're making decisions. They are in front. And you've got elder. That speaks of their spiritual maturity. And so at Fellowship, we have, we have elders. We have elders. We actually have four of them. Three of our elders, uh, their primary ministry is outside of the church, but they also have a leadership role in this church. And then we have a uh, fourth elder, the senior pastor, myself. I'm an elder and a senior pastor. At Fellowship, we also have pastors who work alongside with the senior pastor to give leadership to the church. And so the terms are used rather synonymously, but they have a specific role. If you are an elder, a pastor, an overseer, this is what you do. Your job description is that you need to be growing. You have to be modeling faith and life in Jesus Christ. You've got to be, and then the other characteristics, the things that they're to be doing in their job description, they're to be leading. They are to be setting the tone. They lead by example, and they are involved, making decisions, giving guidance, setting the tone, developing the culture, fostering the environment. They are feeding. They are making sure people are getting the pure milk of the word. They're taking the time and the diligence and the effort to bring the truths of Scripture to bear in people's lives. They're also protecting. You're protecting from false doctrine. You're protecting them from false teachers. And there's all sorts of bad ideas that are out there, and they've got a little Christian label. And so the good pastor, the good elder, is making sure that his people are getting truth, and they're being prevented and kept away from all these errors and being warned about them. They're also nurturing. They're caring. They're helping the broken and the hurting. There's a love and a tenderness. The, the one that's lost, they care about them. And finally, pastors and elders need to be discipling. Jesus said, I want you to go and make disciples of all the nations. And that means that you are investing in people on a personal, one-to-one, one-small-group level, helping them come to know Christ and grow to the fullness of maturity in him. That's what they are to be doing. They have a role and a responsibility. And as you go through 1 Timothy, we've been highlighting that. They're men of exceptional character. They're outlined in chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. And they have specific roles. They are doing just what we said. So just as the church leadership has responsibilities to the people in the church, you need to know this. The people in the church have responsibilities to the church leadership. If you got the idea that being a Christian is kind of a spectator sport and you go sit in the stands and you kind of cheer and when they're doing things, the leader's doing things that make you happy, you're all for them. And as soon as you don't, well, I don't like that, you just pull or you go silent. 
go passive, go cold on them, or you just leave. You need to understand that just like leaders have responsibilities, so do the people in the church. And if you don't know what your responsibilities are, you're, we're a church waiting for an, a tragedy to happen. And so that is why this passage is so important. And chances are, most of you have never, ever heard it spoken of on by a pastor. I was talking with my oldest son about this, and he was like, whoa, that's going to be awkward. Yeah, but I'll tell you what. I don't care if it's awkward. Our authority is Jesus Christ and his word, and we align ourselves under him and his word. That's who we are. We're Fellowship Bible Church. We never pass over the hard passages. We're expositional. We go through passage by passage. So what does it look like if we're going to have healthy church leaders? How are we going to attain and retain strong spiritual church leaders? Well, it's going to begin by us knowing what this passage says and doing it. First of all, he says, you are going to, verse 17, he says, the elders who rule well are to be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. So he begins by saying this, if you're going to have healthy church leaders, you've got to provide compensation in keeping with a leader's position. That's what he's saying here. He says the elders, the elders who rule well. And when he's talking about ruling well, it has the idea of expressing and extending honor. Okay. And so when he's he's saying they're ruling well, and you're supposed to give them honor. To rule means to guide, to lead, to direct, to stand first, to be a leader, to have authority over. They are to be doing this. And those that do this, the, really the emphasis in the Greek text is on the adverb well. They're actually excellent at doing the work of the ministry, especially involved in spiritual leadership. He says those who are doing this well, they're, they're worthy of being considering, considered for double honor and the idea with honor is that you are going to not only show them respect but you compensate them if this is their vocation they're giving all of their time they're giving you the 55 to 75 hours a week and they are doing this work of leadership and ministry that the church is to compensate them it's actually not even a gift it is something they receive and so he's making it clear This is how churches are to operate. But let me, I want to say something. The emphasis here is on those leaders doing it well. You don't become a pastor because you just can't do anything else. You know, like, oh, I just could never do in the business world. I couldn't be a teacher. I could never make it as a mechanic. And so I'll just end up being a pastor. Uh Uh-uh. No. You've got to be competent. You've got to have a Christ-centered orientation. You've got to have skills, development, training, You also have to have a heart that cares and engages. You don't try to become like a Christian rock star. What you do is you do the work of spiritual leadership well. You do it in such a way that you set the example. You not only model maturity in Christ, but you have the ability to cultivate it in others. You yourself are growing in your understanding of knowing God and his word. Your character is being shaped. It is showing up in your relationships and in your ministry slash career, and you can engage others and help them mature in Christ as well. If you can't do it with one or two, you most certainly shouldn't be a pastor or an elder trying to do it with a whole bunch of people. That doesn't make any sense. So he says, if they're doing it well, 
they are worthy, considered worthy of double honor. And he says, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. And that word work hard literally could be translated to work to the point of exhaustion. You know, and it's kind of like a running joke. And people, I hear this every once in a while, like, yeah, well, your job, you only work one day a week. And I have to remind them, actually, it's only a half a day. Actually, it's really about 40 minutes, okay? And they're like, oh, oh, yeah, you're just giving me way too much credit, right? If they are working hard, I want you to know to, to bring the scripture to bear where people are understanding the word. They're seeing, understanding difficult passages. You were teaching them how it applies to their life. That takes a lot of effort. Messages like the one you're hearing today are going to take a minimum of 20 to 30 hours. That's, that is on top of all the other pastoral leadership opportunities and responsibilities that you have, as well as community involvement and things that you're doing. You've got to apply yourself and work hard at, notice what he says, preaching, the idea of proclaiming the word, exposing the true meaning of the passage and how it bears in people's lives, and teaching, which has the idea of instruction. He says those who do that, they are worthy of double honor, respect, and they're worthy of being paid for what they are doing. Now, then he goes on to say in verse 18, to drive home the point, he says, For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle the ox while he is threshing, and the laborer is worthy of his wages. And so here's a really stellar comparison of pastors to ox. Okay, how about that, you know? And, and what he's doing is he he's draws from Deuteronomy chapter 25, verse 4, where it actually talks about oxen and that while they are threshing, they are also, they are also to be entitled to eat. Now, let me just give you, tell you what's going on here in case you're like, what in the world is he talking about here? Let me give you what ancient multitasking looked like, okay? What he's talking about here, the ox that is threshing, they would have a threshing floor. It would be a hard floor, and they put all this grain, like wheat, and it would still be with its husk and, its, and, and it'll have the kernels there, and it needed to be actually threshed. So the oxen would be attached to these large poles, and they would have this uh, large millstone that they were attached to. They would be, they'd walk around in circles. They would pour the grain that had been separated from the shaft into that millstone, and it would grind it up into flour. At the same time, the ox are walking around. They're, pull, they're making that millstone do this, grinding it into flour, but their hooves are going, and they are actually taking the wheat and separating it from the chaff, or those kernels from the rest of the chaff. And in the meantime, the guy that owns the oxen, you know, he's watching Sports Center, okay? And his ox is his oxen are moving around circle, and they're they're doing multitasking. They're double timing. And what they what God says is, if they're working hard like that, and you're kicking back eating popsicles, they are not to be muzzled. Those ox, they need to be able to eat. And so Paul says, same is true with your elders, or if you got pastors who are full time giving themselves a vocational ministry, they're entitled to be paid. And he's also saying uh, something else that's pretty interesting. He says, and the laborer is worthy of his wages. Does anybody know who said that? Jesus. He said it in Luke chapter 10, uh, verse 7, also in Matthew 10, 10. He said a laborer is worthy of his wages. If they are working hard and they are doing well, they deserve to be paid. Now, this is, this is pretty interesting. Now, I want to make something ultra clear. Pastors, elders, they do not mix their personal finances with church finances. It's not like, oh, it's all just one big melting pot and, you know, and uh, no. 
There is high degree of accountability and absolute separation. There are checks and balances. At Fellowship, man, we have strong checks and balances, absolute integrity. There is a complete separation. So it's not like, well, then the pastors can just use whatever church funds they have. No. We've got a capital fund, and I want to build an addition to my house. Oh, there you go. No. Absolutely not. It doesn't work that way. And then here's something else that's really interesting. Paul is demonstrating the authority of Scripture. He is placing an Old Testament verse with something that Luke recorded from what Jesus said, and he's putting them on equal authority. And he's basically doing this for a point, to drive home the authority of Scripture and this point, that you are to provide compensation in keeping with a leader's position. I heard of a, a pastor who was woefully underpaid. I heard this story about this guy, and he, he went to a church. This church had been praying, you know, Lord, please give us a pastor that is humble and poor. And you keep him humble, and we'll keep him poor. You know, one of those kind of churches. And any, anybody that comes to me for advice, I tell them, you want to flee a place like that. You know, obviously, their heart's not to honor Christ. They're to just kind of have you grind it out. And when you die, they're going to find another one to run over. So don't go there. Well, he went there anyway, and he's there, and he could never provide for his family. He's woefully underpaid. And finally, there's a church, another church came by and said, you know, we, we would really like you to shepherd and be our leader and help us grow and mature in Christ. And, and they were talking, and they, they asked him how much he made. They were shocked. He said, well, we're at least going to give you at least 50% more than that. And so he said, well, I'll just go home and pray about it. And so he went home, told his wife about it. And he said, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pray about this. She goes, do you want me to, to pray with you? And he said, nah, why don't you go pack? I'll pray, okay? <laughs> Let me tell you. If you got pastors, if you got an elder who is full-time vocationally giving himself to this ministry and he's working hard and he's putting in those kind of hours, he is skilled and he's competent, he's got to be able to provide for his family, right? Let me tell you, all sorts of pressures happen when you feel like, I can't make this work. And yet you've got all those responsibilities in front of you. Now, I want to tell you, I am so grateful that our elders are tuned in to this passage. And we take, people, take care of our staff well. And I'll also tell you, we are blessed to have a congregation that is absolutely submitted to the honor and glory of Christ. And we recognize what we have is, is of his. And we give generously. And I want to thank you. Let me give you another uh, trait you want to have healthy church leaders, you want to retain them and attain them, notice what else he says, beginning in verse 19. You need to protect leaders from false accusations. Look what he says here. Do not receive an accusation against an elder except on the basis of two or three witnesses. Let me tell you, if you are a leader, you are like a magnet for accusations. I don't know what, where this idea comes from, but you can see a leader, and you see this in other arenas, they, they become targets. And if people got gripes or problems or complaining or whatever, they just target the leader. And they can do what is called character assassination, and they go public on it. And many a good pastor has simply been destroyed by this. What he says here is, you do not receive an accusation against an elder or a pastor or an overseer, except on the basis of two or three witnesses. That isn't that you ignore individual charges like, oh, oh, they're untouchable. Absolutely not. What he's saying there is you exercise a great degree of caution when you're hearing such things, and you make sure 
that these are legitimate, okay? There are, there are no perfect leaders or pastors, okay? And I'm by far imperfect. And you guys know that, all right? But so there's going to be times where, you, you know, people are going to level criticism or there's going to be wrong reasons or some impure motives or some minor imperfections or some failure to meet somebody's expectation or there are going to be personality clashes, okay? You want to figure out what the real issues are. And are they sin issues or is that someone's just kind of disgruntled or didn't go the way they wanted? So, for instance, sin issues like moral issues, like moral breakdown or an ethical violation, or there is some clear violation of Scripture. If you've got a sin, you ought to be able to find it in the book, right? And if someone is doing this, especially an elder pastor, you need to be able to cite, hey, this is a clear violation of Scripture. Or like maybe they've got uncontrolled anger. That's a sin. Drunkenness, taking illegal drugs, illegal financial dealings, abuse, immoral relationships, slander. If you've got a leader or a pastor that's engaging in any kind of sin, that's got to be supported, he says, with two or three witnesses. You need to make sure of the facts. Just because someone says something doesn't necessarily mean that it's actually true. And so you need to investigate it. Make sure it is. Now, you know, you've heard that phrase, you know, where there's smoke, there must be fire, right? And that is an excellent slogan for the Spiegelville Volunteer Fire Department, okay? And I, it is. But that isn't necessarily true when it comes when you hear accusations against leaders. In fact, it might be someone blowing off a lot of steam, and it looks like smoke, but really, it's just someone that didn't quite get their way or they themselves have issues and they're going to take it out on leaders. It is serious. And so what he says is you make sure you examine it. There is one precious commodity leaders have. It is their integrity, their character. And so as a church, we value that. And we're not going to take accusations lightly, but neither are we going to just have a free-for-all and just go accuse any elder for anything you want to do. No, Paul says, you be real careful when it comes to this matter. By the way, Joseph, Moses, David, Jeremiah, Nehemiah, Jesus, you know what they all had in common, don't you? They all were suffered from false accusations, things that weren't true, that were being pegged on them. And so you want to be factual, and you want to make sure that these are real issues. But once a pastor and elder's guilt has been confirmed, you got your two or three witnesses, and you see this, then the other elders and pastors, if they're going to be involved in this situation, they're going to confront this leader with the evidence. This is what is being said. This is what it's showing. This is the record. These are the receipts. And you give that person an opportunity to give an account. He needs to be confronted with the evidence. He has an opportunity to answer. Now, it's not a trial, but what you're doing is you're giving this individual an opportunity to clear his name or an opportunity to accept responsibility for the wrongdoing. But you handle these things well and with grace. And so that's what he's saying. Make sure, though, you protect your elders from false accusation. But what if you have an elder or a pastor, and he has an evidence sin issue, he has been confronted with it, but he's still going rogue, and he doesn't care? What do you do? Well, the third principle that Paul lays out here is you practice church discipline for leaders who persist in sin. Look at verses 20 and 21. He says, those who continue in sin 
rebuke in the presence of all so that the rest also may be fearful of sinning. If they have a known identified sin, whether it's in their work life, their social life, their church life, in their home life, it has been seen, it has been presented, it can be documented or authenticated, and you confront the elder or that pastor and they're like, come on, you get out of my face. I'm going to sue you. You know, they're throwing all those things out there. The church is committed to the holiness of God. Jesus actually outlined a pattern. Remember in Matthew 18, it's called church discipline. And if you see someone sin, you go to them. You don't run to the pastor and you don't run to all your 20 closest friends about what you saw. You go and confront the individual and say, hey, you know, I saw this. And if that's not working and they aren't listening to you, you bring two or three others with you. If that's not working, then, and they still won't repent, then you come to a place where you tell the church, well, with leaders, you must do this. They have an evident sin. They will not repent. They are unbroken. They are willfully moving forward. The church is committed to the holiness of God because this isn't the leader's church. This is Christ's church. And he says, this is how I want it handled. And so you do. And there's something that's happened. You don't tell the church to humiliate the individual. You do so for the object of restoration. You want this leader desperately to be put back in the place, to experience healing and wholeness in, of, of Christ in his life. And there is another event or another uh, effect that takes place when this happens. Look at verse 20. So the rest also will be fearful of sinning. Jesus takes the holiness of his church seriously. He takes sin seriously. And if you're not afraid of sinning, if you're like, it just doesn't matter, man. I am saved. I'm saved by grace. I can just do whatever I want. I can, I can be mean. I can do things that are a little on the gray area or a lot in the gray area. I can slander individuals whenever I want. I can engage in immoral activity. I can watch pornography because it just doesn't matter. You have missed it. If you're not afraid of sinning, you have a very poor concept of who God really is. Jesus had to die for all that. He wants us committed to holiness. That is especially true with leaders. So if you've got a leader who's gone rogue or he's unrepentant and unbroken, the church will need to be informed and church discipline will need to be practiced. Now, in case you're thinking like, oh, he's not really serious about that, is he? Look at verse 21. I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, the Messiah, the God-man, Christ Jesus, and of his chosen, his elect angels, those administrators of God working in the realm of the seen and the unseen. Can you think of anything a little bit more highly charged than that? The Father, the Son, and all his elect angels? He says, to maintain these principles without bias, doing nothing in a spirit of partiality. No prejudice, no personal bias, no preferential treatment. I don't care if they're wealthy, they're popular, they're successful, they're beautiful. It does not matter. You need to be absolutely fair without any prejudice, no personal bias, and no partiality, no preferential treatment. Uh, you guys are familiar with, like, in our court system, i got a picture of this here. The most popular symbol of justice in the Western court system, you recognize that? Okay. 
It's Yesidia, okay? And in Greek, they called this goddess Dike, and she is the goddess of justice. And what she's doing in her left hand, you see, she's holding these scales, and they're balanced scales. She is weighing the evidence. And in her right hand, you know what she's got there, doesn't she? That, that isn't just a sliced potatoes, okay? This is a sword, and it's meant to execute in her right hand justice, weighing in the balance and exercising justice. That is what our country and the Western world aspires to in justice, that is absolutely fair and justice will be met out. Well, Paul is saying with that same, and the other thing is that this, this woman, you notice that she's blindfolded. She simply cannot see, she's not focused on the individual, she's focused on justice and making sure that it's being met out, fairly, without prejudice. That's what the church has to do. Absolutely fair, no prejudice. If you want to have healthy church leaders, this will have to be put in practice. Now, praise God, we've never had to do this. But let me tell you, we know the passage, and if forced to, we would have to do this because we are absolutely yielded to Christ and his word. And then let me tell you another, just a final principle. You want to have healthy church leaders, you need to do this. You need to pick proven spiritual leaders to be your church leaders. Pick proven ones. Notice what he says, verse 22. Do not lay hands upon anyone too hastily and thereby share responsibility for the sins of others. Keep yourself free from sin. And the idea of laying hands is that you are setting them apart. You are commissioning them for the leadership in your church. Now, he had already said in 1 Timothy chapter 3, he said in verse 6, that it is not to be a new convert. You're not to find, hey, this person has recently come to Christ, and man, they are great business guys. Man, do you see how suave this person, do you see this people skills? We need to make them an elder, like ASAP. That is a really bad idea. Why? Anybody know? That's a bad idea? Because they haven't matured. Would you take a little infant and make them a president of your company or of our country? No. Why would you do so in a church? No. You have leaders that have matured. They have demonstrated a a genuine, authentic relationship with Christ. They are Christ-centered individuals. They've got maturity in their character that shows up in their relationships, in their careers, their ministry, and they've got a track record, not three months, but years. He says, don't lay hands on people too quickly and putting them in leadership positions. And he says, thereby, if you do that, if you do it too hastily, you share in the responsibility for the sins of others. He says, keep yourself free from sin. And literally what that word share is, uh, comes to like koinonio. It's, you're familiar with like koinonia where we have like fellowship. What he's saying there is, we usually think of fellowship when we have the united with Christ and the joy with him. If you lay your hands on a leader and you commission them to be the leader of your church way too soon, and they go on sinning, their immaturity gets expressed, you share in their shame. And he says, I don't want it. I need and desperately want you to find mature leaders. And so you are looking, do they have a track record of health? Are they free from addictions, compulsions, moral and ethical corruption? Do they have ugly habits? Is there a sense of transparency? Can they lead someone to Christ? And can they disciple them? Help them grow to maturity. Can they do it? Do they have a track record? I'll tell you, when I'm looking at leaders, I want to ask them this question. Show me your men. 
show me the guys you've poured into that, that they're living and walking differently in their relationship with God and they understand their identity in Christ because of your involvement. Because those are the kind of guys you want as leaders. So you want to pick proven spiritual leaders to be your church leaders. You're looking for a Christ-centered orientation. You're looking for proven abilities. And you're looking for mature character and attitudes. And so he says, you want to be really careful. Let me give you a principle. Too much, too soon, too bad. You give someone too much responsibility, too soon, too bad. You're going to pay some serious tuition on it. It is going to hurt you and it's going to hurt the church. Because why? As go the leaders, so go the people. Right? Leaders set the tone and the culture for the church. You want to be real careful that you have mature spiritual leaders in that place. You know, uh, one great way of avoiding disciplining elders, pastors, you know, how that, a great way of avoiding that is pick spiritually mature ones to start with. Now, all of this being a pastor... And all the problems and the issues that Timothy is facing, and we've actually talked about them, this has led to huge stomach problems for Timothy, okay? And that'll, the ministry will do it for you, you know? It'll make you sick. You're going to need medicine. And so Paul says in verse 23, No longer drink water exclusively, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. Whoa, what? Right there. Well, let me tell you what I think is going on here. I think Timothy had made the choice to abstain from alcohol completely. I think he wanted to not set any pattern where someone could misread that because alcohol had a prevalent, was prevalently used in his time, just like it is in our time. But Paul is saying here, you want to keep yourself free from sin, verse 22. But Timothy, you're not sinning if you're drinking wine, especially for the sake of your stomach. Now, obviously, he's not talking about drunkenness. Don't think like, oh, there's my verse. That'll just kind of justify my drinking habit. I didn't learn much in church today, but I really honed in on verse 23, right? Okay. And that, you know, next thing you know, that's on your fridge. No, I, notice, let's talk about that. I see a lot of confusion here. I'm going to help you out. All right, he says, no longer drink water exclusively. That's what he was doing. But use a little wine for the sake of your stomach. And wine was used in ancient times for medicinal purposes. But let me tell you about the water. The water was always impure, and a lot of people had dysentery, and they had huge issues because of all the impurities of the water. And so it was rather common that people drink wine because wine functioned as a disinfectant. Timothy was avoiding the wine, so he's just drinking the water, and it's making him real sick. And Paul says, you know what? Timothy, you've got stomach issues. Whether these are just health issues or because of the church health issues that he's facing, either way, Timothy, you need to do so and use it for your frequent ailments. Here is something that's pretty interesting. I want you to see just on the subject of divine healing. Paul, God had used Paul at different times to bring healing. And God can heal whoever he wants, whenever he wants. Okay? And when the New Testament was being authenticated and written, God actually had people like Paul and the apostles, and they at times would do miracles. But even when we see with the writing of 1 Timothy, don't you think that if Paul wanted or could at any time at his will want to heal someone, that he would have healed Timothy of these ailments? He would have. But he didn't. Likely, he couldn't. He'd already established the, the authority of the word. And here's something else. You always find some people that say, like, oh, medicine is of the devil, right? And so you can't have that, right? And doctors love to hear these sort of things. 
And you have parents that withhold medicines to children, and, and you have adults that are making decisions because I am going to stay completely away from medicine. Look what the text says. This is actually saying that you should even take a medicine, i.e. wine, for your frequent ailments. It's just something for you to keep in mind. That God actually even is the one who creates medicines, and he wants to help people. And so Paul is saying, you, find, you need to find strong spiritual leaders, but don't think that you've disqualified yourself because you have to drink wine for your stomach. And then going back to the point then, he says, about finding strong, proven spiritual leaders, he says, the sins of some men are quite evident, going before them to judgment. For others, their sins follow after. Likewise, also deeds that are good are quite evident, and those which are otherwise cannot be concealed. What he's saying, in essence, is this. We reap what we sow. And what is in your heart is going to come out your life. You can put on a show. You can conceal it for a while. You can put on facades. And you see it. There's some people that are really glitzy spiritually when you initially meet them. But time will reveal the true nature and the character of their heart. And so he says, you want to be real careful in when you're identifying spiritual leaders. Simply put, friends, the health of a church is determined by the health of its people, both its leaders and its members. Now, I'll just tell you, I, I have pastor friends. Let me rephrase that. I have some former pastor friends. And there's several reasons why they are no longer in what we would call pastoral vocational ministry. But I, I will tell you one of the reasons. This passage was neglected and not followed. I, I remember, uh, Karina and I hadn't been here too long, and uh, through a common friend, they, had a, they sent a couple from, to us from a church in uh, East Texas. And they were all beat up. I mean, they're like just crying. I don't even know them. You know why? This passage was not followed. And that church chewed them up and spit them out. And there they were. You know, churches are like cars. If you've got a car that's just all broken down, the engine's seized up, belts are not taken care of, you've got holes in the hoses, the car doesn't go where it's supposed to go, and it doesn't drive like it was intended, no matter how many people you pack in it. On the other hand, if you've got a car that's well taken care of, look at that, which one of the two do you want? You know, well taken care of, all oil, got gas, it moves forward Churches are like cars. You don't follow the scriptures. You don't yield and submit to Christ. Your church ends up looking like the top car. And it gets hauled away by a tow truck. Do you know why? Because it's not being taken care of. On the other hand, if you want to go places, yield to Christ, follow his word. For the health of a church is determined by the health of its people. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you so much for... The clear direction of your word. Thank you, Father, for a body of believers that healed and loved your son. Placed the scriptures in high regard and actually followed them. So God, would you continue to have your way in us. Shape and develop our convictions. Fill us with the joy of the spirit. Help us to know the reality of the gospel. Change us, transform us, and would you continue to have your way in Fellowship Bible Church for your glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.